This evening we continue our series through the book of James. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 this evening. That is chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. As I kind of pray just now, is, you know, we've been going through the book of James, and the book of James, uh, if I could term it in one word, it would be a book, or rather the ethics, a book of ethics, and particularly that which causes us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And so um, James sometimes pulls no punches, but he gets right to the heart of the matter, and it's do, he's doing so out of love for his people, for what does it matter if you tell folks what they want to hear, and then they bust hell wide open. So James is speaking to us as a brother who is concerned for us as he was for the folks who were his primary hearings at that time. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also fate by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, the fate, that fate apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that fate was active along with his works, and fate was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Again, our glorious heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you would be with us now. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Grow us in the image of our Lord and do all to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just get right into it. In verse 14, we see that this passage starts with two poignant questions which can be combined and, and paraphrased as follows. If a person professes to be a Christian, that is one who has placed their trust in Christ, but that person's life is not characterized by doing the things that Christians are called to do in Scripture. If that is noticeably the case as it relates to that person, then is that person genuinely that which they have professed to be? Are they a Christian? Further distill the two questions before us this evening, is there a fate that truly saves? And by extension then, is there a faith that can be professed but not possess that which God has freely offered? James, in no uncertain terms, 
provides us with answers to all those questions. He does that here by emphasizing a truth that can be found throughout Scripture. And that is, what we do reveals who we are. Here it might be helpful for us to, to remember that his primary audience were the Jews who, who were dispersed from Jerusalem as a consequence of the persecution that they had experienced in that city. It was there that Stephen, during that time in Acts 7, the deacon you might remember, was killed. Now why is that information helpful? Well, as I see it in times of gross persecution, you don't have time to iron out theological difference and to bicker about this and that. You just go. And so it was that you had those who were probably true adherents of the faith through the gospel that they had heard. They were truly regenerated by and producing the works of the Spirit. And then there were those who probably had not, were not regenerated and were thus using the gospel as a means to their end. You still have that. The Bible tells us, or the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us, that the visible church is made up of those who profess, but not necessarily does that mean those who possess. And so what do I mean by that? Well, remember that the law, because of one man's sinful nature, was a tremendous, because of our sinful nature, rather, was a tremendous burden to people. And it was meant to be that way because one of its purpose was to point us to something or to someone better, namely Christ. The law was onerous. Now add to that the traditions that the religious leaders had added to that which God had prescribed. And you had the context for why Jesus would say that his yoke was easy, but his burden was light. And so in all that, you had these folks who saw the gospel of grace as an opportunity to move towards living in an antinomian environment, that is, an environment without what they viewed as any law that could restrict them. All they had to do, they asserted, was to have faith. And that is as a, just a belief, and that was good enough, no matter what they did. Remember in this book, James highlights over and over the case of being self-deceived. He wants us to not walk around deceived, thinking that we have something and we actually don't. And so it is to that group that James is primarily addressing in this passage. This evening, I want us to see the manner in which he addressed that issue. And he does so in three ways that I'm going to highlight. First, he provides a pointed illustration then he provides two verifiable assertions. Then lastly, he provides two well-established examples. Now first, let's look at his pointed illustration. We can see that in verses 14 through 17. And first, I want you to notice how James opens this section of dialogue in 14 through 17. He does so by asking two very telling questions. The first one, what good is it? And then he ends with, what good is that? In context, you see, it's two rhetorically formed questions that beg for an answer to the question, is the faith that does not produce works that are in keeping with a proper response to God's character, his prescription, and his desire, a faith that saves, a faith that has truly bridged the gap 
of reconciliation between God and man. Theologically speaking, we refer to this genuine faith that I'm referring to here as saving faith. James does not want, he doesn't wait for an answer to come from them. Instead, he goes on to provide an, an illustration that anyone could identify with. You see, there are some things in life that are so evident to the rational mind that when you see or hear any words or actions that run contrary to those things, our immediate response, whether out loud or internally, is that's not right. That's, not, that's just not right. You know, in that front, I remember when I was growing up how I used to love putting ketchup on my rice. I also remember like it was yesterday, it was the summer of 1984 in East Brooklyn, New York. I was sitting at the table with my uncle and my first cousin, and we were eating chicken, beans, and rice. And so I took out my little ketchup bottle and started dousing it on the, on the, on the, on the rice, and my cousin looked at my uncle and then he looked at me and he was like, that's just not right. That ain't right. And he looked at my uncle and my uncle, yep, that's not right. You see, there's just some things we know just ain't right. And so Jake right here, James gives us one of those instances. For you see, a person suffering from hunger and the clothes they have are almost non-existent or, or terribly raggedy. It is evident that that person is in need of, of being taken care of. But you now, you being of sound faith, if you turn to them and say, may the Lord bless you and keep you, and may he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace and send that person on his way. In a rational world where, one, where people understand the character and nature of God, the character and motives of his actions while he walked among us, and you saw something like that, you would be like, wait, that's not right. That would be the reasonable response if you saw someone who said something like that in response to someone who was in need. The answer is that ain't right, James says. That's exactly the way it is with someone who claims to be born of God, but does not live in a manner that demonstrates that state of being, that ism, that state of existence. In no uncertain terms, he says, so also fate by itself, just like that uh, example of a person being without clothes and ragged and needing help, and all you're doing is saying, brother, I'll pray for you, and you're sending them in the way. That is not what they would need at that point, nor is it what God would prescribe at that point. That would be a false dichotomy. And so he's saying the same thing. So also faith by itself, just saying that you have faith, you believe in God, is not, it's not good in itself. If it does not have works, it is dead. Now, you know, there are times when absolutely purely objective, quantifiable truth no matter how rational and reasonable it is, can just fall on deaf ears. You know people like that. Matter of fact, sometimes I'm like that. You can say the truth, rational, whatever the case may be, and it just falls on deaf ears. I can see here how some in James' audience might have fallen into that category. These folks might have insisted that their belief in God was genuine. They knew God's word. They loved God's word. That's what they would say. They even graced the place of worship with their presence 
Every single time the door of the church or the synagogue or whatever opened, they were aware of all the theological debates and would insist that they were on the right side of all the issues. James either heard that sort of response to what he had just shown them or he anticipated it. Thus, in the beginning of verse 18, we read, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Again, it's an anticipation of or in response to the posture that I just commented on. And so James then gives us our second heading, two verifiable assertions. That is two sets of facts that cannot be denied, not by any rational mind. Both are given in response to you have faith and I have works, that statement. Look at the rest of verse 18 through 19. Show me your fate apart from your works, and I will show you my fate by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James says you can tell me all day long that you believe in God. You can tell me all day long that you believe in his word. You can tell me all day long that you know the issues that are central to Christianity and all those who believe. But guess what? That's no different than Satan and his demon. They too know the word better than you and I. You know that Satan knows the word better than all of us in this church put together. He even goes to church. Did you know that Satan goes to church? All one has to do is look at so many of the, the churches that have become apostate in America and you would know that Satan visits regularly every Sunday in those places. He believes Jesus came because Satan does of Adam's sin. He believed that Jesus died on the cross. He believes that Jesus rose from the dead and is sitting on the right-hand side of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead. Satan believes every single orthodox creed that came down throughout Christendom. But the operative question here is, is he saved? So I can imagine hearing James say, if your answer is no, then shouldn't that also be your answer to my opening question? Can such a faith, one that just talks about belief, can such a faith, one that rests entirely on belief, can that faith save you? Now again, we know there are people in life when after they raise a first objection, yeah, when you raise a first objection, they might hear you and they might say, you know what, that's a good point. Let me, I'll consider that, you know. We call folks like that Bereans often. We like to call them Bereans. Now, on the other hand, you have some folks who are so grounded in their stubborn refusal. And again, we know that the spirit has a lot to do with that. But in, in any case, they're so stubborn in their refusal that even in the face of what seems to be so clear this issue seems to be so clear that if you're not careful, you get tempted. These folks, they're so clear that when they refuse and they stay stubborn, you get tempted to feel bad about it. You get tempted to feel like, man, how can you not hear this? You get tempted to want to fuss or cuss or, or whatever or get, you know, up in arms because they're refusing to hear you. And this might come out of a place of great love for them. You care for them and you want them to embrace 
what you know with all your heart because you know that you know that you know that it's either heaven or it's hell. And so you're persuaded. But in the midst of all that, they still don't want to assent to that which seems to be visibly true throughout Scripture. So we're all human, and so I can imagine James might have been feeling some of that frustration here as he started to write verse 20. And I say that because of a word that's used here. It reads, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? That just saying that you believe in God and, and, and you know all the decrees and you've been catechized and you come to church and you do all that, do you want to, to see that just doing that in itself is not saving faith? You who would insist on this ideology of easy believism. You who would lean on the words of the Apostle Paul to live in a manner that's totally inconsistent with what Paul himself has communicated to us in Scripture. Do you want me to further demonstrate, he's saying, that which I've been trying to tell you all along? Do I need to keep emphasizing it? Okay, let me give you then. He says, two examples. And with that, he provides our final heading. Look at verses 21 through 25. It reads, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that fate was active along with his work. They were joined together, he's saying, and fate was completed that is not saying that he was saved by his, or justified by his action, but he was vindicated or demonstrated by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, he goes on to say, that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He goes about showing us that Abraham's actions was butchers. His fate was butchers by his actions. And it was that that fulfilled what was spoken when he was declared righteous because he believed. If he had declared his belief and had not followed through in obeying God, then his so-called fate would have been void at that point and not been saving fate. The fact that he followed through with his actions validated, vindicated the fact that he had true faith. It revealed that he had true faith. His works did. And in the same way, or it goes on, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So again, this brothers and sisters is talking about the evidence of one's justification that are produced during one's sanctification. And in the same way it goes on to say, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So yes, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But again, notice that his fate was validated and is worth repeating and repeating 
that his faith was validated not just by his belief, but by his willingness to give up his only son, the son of promise. Now I want you to stop for a second because it's there in the pages of scriptures. But do we ever stop to think about how radical Abraham's fate had to be to give up Isaac? This is the person that God had promised him. And by the time that this is happening, it's been about 40 years since he received this promise. And now when he received this promise, he and his wife were dead in terms of childbearing. So how much more dead were there at this point? And yet he gave him up. He was willing to give Isaac up. And you know what else? He would have had to go back home and face Sarah and say, Sarah, oh, by the way, I killed Isaac. She would have probably went mute for three days. And then when she rose from the dead on the third day, it would have been woe unto Abraham. But you see, Abraham wasn't concerned about all that. Because it goes on to say in Hebrews 19, it informs us that Abraham believed God would raise Isaac from the dead and his faith was on full display in that moment. God had to stop him from doing it because his faith, he believed God and he knew that God was going to fulfill his promise. That is faith. And so faith walks in obedience to God's word because faith believes every promise that God makes. And now you look at Rahab. That's the second example that he puts forth here, Rahab. Now, Abraham, think about this for a second. Abraham was most highly esteemed as the father of the Jewish nation, of Israel, right? But now here you have Rahab, a prostitute. That's the thing about scripture. Scripture uses everyone that's messed up, jacked up, whatever up. All of us are, by the way. But I'm saying, would you have been using Rahab in an example and putting her in the hall of fate in Hebrews 11? But here you have Rahab, a prostitute, a Gentile, separated from the ethnic people of God. Okay, she was one of the enemy, if you will. But yet she demonstrated by her actions. She didn't hear directly from God as Abraham did. But she knew of God. And she reacted in faith to that which she had heard and followed through in that which she indicated she would do. And she even placed that red ribbon or whatever else you call it in her window. If that ain't faith, I don't know what is. And so she demonstrated by her actions that she believed God. And what, what do you know? Here she is in the hall of faith as a result of that very thing. Brothers and sisters, what we should take away from this was surely no less than this as it relates to a true believer. Faith and works are conjoined twins in sanctification. What the Apostle Paul is talking about is justification. We're saved by God's work. Christ alone, faith alone, period. But when it comes to our sanctification, if there are no works in that path, something is wrong. And like I said last week when I talked about partiality, we have God's spirit in us. And we are supposed to reflect God. 
We're created in his image to reflect who he is, his character, everything about him. And so if he is in us and it is him that's in us, working in us to do that which is pleasing in his own sight, and you don't produce the fruit of the spirit, then the question needs to be asked, am I in the faith? Do I really believe what it is that I said I believe? Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, God prepared good works before anything even came into existence. What are the chances that he would then set apart a people for himself, fill them with his spirit, and they not manifest the things that he called them to or that he ordained before the foundation of the world? The chances are zero. God is the one working in and through us. And if we are walking in true faith, we're going to manifest the fact that the Spirit of God is working in us and producing those works that he has called us to. How then can we have who redeemed our anything else other than that which God himself providentially ordained for us is another way of paying that. He didn't end there though. He gave us himself. That is the Holy Spirit. God gave him himself. He didn't just ordain good works for us, but he gave us himself as an indwelling presence so that he might be the one working in and through us and so we rest in that truth, but work with that knowledge in hand. Now, I'm reminded of a story where there was a fire in the upper section of a house. As the people gathered in the street below, they recognized and noticed that there was a child, a young girl in the window. The fire department could not get there, but five minutes later, by that time it would be too late. So how was she to escape to safety? Now along came this large man that everyone in the neighborhood knew. He was known for his strength and his athletic ability. This man arrived at the scene and, and shouted to the girl, drop into my arms. Don't be afraid, I'll catch you. Now it's one part of fate for that girl to have known about that man's strength, to say that she believed it and talked about it to other people but now that she's in the fire, it's the second part of fate that will demonstrate that she really believed that if she jumped. You see it? She would have to jump to demonstrate that she really and truly believed that. And that is what you're seeing James is saying here over and over and over again. That is our actions prove our works, those things that we do as prescribed, not just what we want to do, but as prescribed by scripture, it is as we engage those works that we are demonstrating that we truly believe in the God that called us. I'll close there, but I feel like I can't close without saying something I believe we need to hear. And that is we should note that the declaration of Abraham's imputed righteousness did not in no way, it didn't in any way equate to Abraham being perfect. Did not indicate perfection. Remember, Abraham, that's the same man that, that lied and told the king that his wife was his sister so that he could spare his own life 
threw his own wife under the bus, right? Now, had God not intervened, that king might have slept with Sarah. And so God had to intervene so that, if you think about it, that, that's a wicked act. And the Bible spears no one. It shows us that everyone is a sinner, that everyone is imperfect, and that everyone therefore needs to look to Christ. Christ fulfilled that which we hear perfectly. He came here and in his active obedience, he walked on the earth, and he exhibited a faith that no one else has ever matched, nor will anyone ever else match. And we are called to live like Christ. And so we too then are to walk in faith just as he relied on the Father, depended on the Father, believed the Father, and therefore acted on, on what he believed. We are called to do likewise by and through the power of the Spirit. And amazingly enough, if you remember, Jesus started that as soon as the scriptures start talking about what he did. Twelve years old, and he's in the father's house and tells his parents, do you not know that I would be doing my father's will? At 12 years old. So we have a perfect example, a perfect savior. We do not have to be perfect, but what we should be seeing in our own lives is we should be seeing that our faith is growing, that our trust is growing, and therefore our acts are growing. When we look at ourselves now, when we look beyond us five years ago, we should be able to say, I can see where God has worked in and through me and where I have produced such and such and such, all to the praise of his glory, because he's the one working in and through me. I could see where I trust God more, where I believe God more, where I'm walking in the light of his word more, and we should be able to see that. And that demonstrates saving faith. But anyone who is walking around just saying, yeah, I believe in God, yeah, this, but their life is characterized, and that's a key word. Life is characterized by a life of disobedience, a life of me, myself, and I, doing what I want to do, irrespective or regardless of what God's word calls me to, I would say to that person, really and truly, examine yourself. We love you and we want to see the life of Christ living or lived through you all to the praise of his glory. On sometime this week, a little caution here. Sometimes this week, a man named Dwayne came up to the office and spoke to Anna, said he wanted to speak to one of us, and he came here in a truck, and he had one of his legs amputated. He had on one of those prosthetics, prosthetics, and so he wanted us to give him money. So one of the things that has been established here at the church, and what I'm trying to say to you is in our doing of good works, we have to be discerning also. In our expression of faith, we have to be discerning also, Right? And so we as a church have came, come up with a policy in that sort of situation where we, through the partners that we've been providing missionary funds to, will direct them. And so I directed him uh, to Gateway Rescue Mission because I felt that they had a better hand on being able to assess his situation. But I listened to him, his uh, story for some time. I prayed with him, and then I gave him my card and said, Go ye here. What am I saying to you? Not everyone is going to be closely at the breast to help 
or to do the things that we're being called, again, uh, uh, to minister to the widow, to minister to the poor. Not everyone is going to be directly in that, but your heart should be grieving you when you go on County Line Road 55 and you see the homeless unclothed. Our heart should be wanting to give to the work of God to address those who are marginalized, those who are in need, and those who need to hear the gospel. Our faith needs to be on a hill for everyone to see. Amen? Let's pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for saving us. We know that we could not have saved ourselves in any way, shape, or form. We pray, God, that you would work in and through us so that we might produce those works that manifest the fact that we are walking in your saving grace. We thank you, Lord, for calling us. We thank you for giving us your word in the gospel. Father, if there's any among us uh, who is just walking in a belief but are not manifesting the things that you would uh, tend to say are evidence of saving grace, I pray that you would comfort, that you would uh, regenerate them, that demonstrate your mercy, grab hold of them, and move them in the path to sanctification. Praise be to you in all your works as you do that. May you grab hold of each and every one of us and cause us to, to be accountable to one another, to exhort one another, and more as we see today approaching, uh, to join one another in proclaiming your name and then demonstrating the faith that glorifies you and tends to the, the word, the work that you have preferred or uh, prepared for us before the foundation of this world. We thank you again for calling us. We thank you again for using us. And may everything that we do say in our spheres of influence glorify you as we manifest saving faith all to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.